Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North Midway through the week, Wednesday, September 20th. It is wonderful to have you aboard the program. A big day. If you've been following True North's coverage all across this country, you'll know that the Million March for Children, it's sometimes called the Million Person March, is underway. And we have reporters out on the scene in Toronto, in Ottawa, in Edmonton, in Calgary. We've had citizen journalists send us stuff from all over. We've got someone in Vancouver. We've got uh, people that have, I mean, there are cities I didn't even know were having their own like in Pickering. I had a, a woman who I actually met while we were reporting on the Conservative Convention just send me some details about the protests that are going on there. And I don't know if they got to the million mark. Some of these have a few hundred to a few thousand people. And there are certainly large numbers of counter-protesters. But I think it is an interesting dilemma that we see when on one hand we have a group of people mainly parental rights advocates that are coming together and saying we want to have a say over what our children learn in schools and then you've got unions that are responding with messages like this one in this photograph oh this no this is uh nilly kaplan mirth I, so before we this isn't the one but this one's actually fantastic uh, because she is uh trying to lead some of the counter protesters there but she can't because she had covid uh despite uh wearing like a mask uh, everywhere she goes and uh <laughs> and like you know getting her 19th booster or whatever but i like the guidance she gives for how to protest she says mask up don't film allies, which is like a weird line. Come with friends, don't talk to cops, and don't debate fascists. So uh, those are the five rules to uh, Nilly kaplan Uh No, sorry, I meant Sean. Sean's asking the sign uh, that Harrison took a picture of at the Toronto rally. That's the one I, I'm going after here. There we go. You don't own your kids. Now, this is a really chilling message. Now, I, I said, I think the confusion was, I said union activists. I don't know if the person holding this sign is uh, one of the union protesters. Generally, I think union folks have been the ones leading the charge in organizing these counter protests. But the, the argument when you see something like this, no, no one owns their children. No one owns another human being. That's what being in a free society is. But they're not taking issue with the fact that uh, we are uh, seeing parents claiming they own their kids. They're taking issue with the fact that they, as teachers, don't. And that's the real part of this that I think people need to realize. It's not that they're actually making the enlightenment liberal argument that no one owns children. They're actually saying that uh, teachers know better than parents. And that's why this this dilemma that we're seeing and between the uh, co the counter protesters and the protesters is something that we need to pay attention to because I would say at its core, and I'll talk about this in a few minutes, this is how society should work. People have an issue with the system, they protest the system. People have an issue with the protesters, they want to protest the protesters, that's fine. But the counter protest is kind of weird on its face for that reason, and that they've already got what it is they want. They have. So the only reason they're out there counter protesting is because they feel they're losing, and it's because they. They see the tide turning against them and they see parents starting to unite together, groups that have not historically seen eye to eye on th to things. 
and they're doing this. So as I mentioned, we've got reporters on the scene at uh, many of these events across the country. Harrison Faulkner is in Toronto, and I think you prematurely got a glimpse of Harrison earlier, uh, but we have him on now uh, maturely, I guess. Harrison, good to talk to you. Where Whereabouts are you right now? I am coming to you live from Bloor Street. Hold on, let me just make sure I've got my, my camera here. I'm coming to you live from Bloor Street, where the protesters have moved from Queen's Park, and we're now marching, uh, if you can see, this is the front up here. And we've got a lot of True North fans around here, so it's, uh, it's, it's been great. But, but uh, yeah, Andrew, this has been a large protest. Uh, we're looking at probably 2,000 people who have turned out today, parents, grandparents, students, uh, and as I'm sure you've already mentioned, a very large contingent of Muslims have, have come here to protest gender ideology. Everything has remained peaceful, though, uh, despite the counter-protesters making their presence felt, encircling the protests at one point. But uh, it looks as though the Million March for Children protests in Toronto have moved and are now making our way across Bloor Street. So let's talk about that Muslim aspect there, because I know this was a protest that was really spearheaded and organized by Muslim activists at first. Uh, and I, I'm not asking you to do the identity politics game and start like measuring every crowd by its diversity, but how much is that factoring in? Or is this really a, a pan-Canadian protest from what you're seeing? No, it's a pan-Canadian protest. It's it, there, There's obviously a large Muslim turnout here, but it covers the spectrum of Canadians, I think. You, you have a large Christian turnout. Faith leaders of all religions have showed up. But of course, I think, I think the, the part about it being organized by a group of Muslim parents is important because the counter-protesters have deemed this as some sort of fascist, racist gathering. I asked people here if they'd seen anything like that on the ground. And of course, they said no. Uh, I think, to be honest, Andrew, like most protests that we've covered about gender ideology, the protesters are far more diverse than the counter-protesters are, uh, which I think is a unique angle that not many people are talking about. So let us let me ask about the counter-protests. I, I shared that picture you took earlier of the sign about parents not owning their kids, and I, I perhaps I was reading too much subtext into it, but I feel the concern there is that these folks are thinking that they do. And, you know, remember that old Hillary Clinton line, it takes a village to raise a child. There are people that think the rights of parents should be subordinated to the right of, you know, what they would view as the greater good here. And what is it that the protesters are asking for? I got a glimpse over your shoulder there of a sign that is basically leave our kids alone. Like, what is it they want? Well, the protesters just want to actually be able to, for example, know if their child is undergoing some sort of social transition at school. That's the main thing. I think the other thing is that they want to see normal uh, curriculum being put in front of students. Right now, we've seen the pictures, we've seen the reports, the things that, that, teachers, that teachers are showing children in schools is frankly absurd. They just, they just feel like their values are not being recognized, only values of uh, the, 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 the sort of the radical gender ideology crowd are being, are being promoted. And, that's, and that's, that's basically it. Sorry, there's a lot of people around right now. Uh, here we've got, no, we've got, that's good. I mean, I know you're, uh, you're gonna be taking photos with your fans later on, so uh, we're, we're glad we haven't had too much photo bombing here. 
Uh, you seem to have frozen right now, so I don't know if this is the uh, internet uh, gods telling us that the interview has run its course. Uh, if we can get Harrison back, we will uh, get him back on there. I mean, I'm glad it, it froze on like a flattering face, though, at least. So uh, <laughs> you're, you're smiling there. But, uh, uh, thanks very much. That is uh, Harrison Faulkner coming to us from Toronto, where, uh, again, I don't know the numbers. He said probably about 2,000. I always, always, always avoid crowd sizes because it becomes like the most thankless and politicized and controversial part of any event coverage. Because like I remember with the convoy, you know, convoy organizers were saying, we don't know how many people are here. And I asked uh, one of the police officers, how many do you think there are? And they said, well, you know, our numbers say 10,000. And then you get people jumping on you saying, no, there are four people. And then no, there are 2 million people. So uh, anyway, so Harrison says 2000. I don't, he's going to get jumped on from both sides there. But I will say that uh, that was a, a pretty big crowd. You could hear the chants. We are going to go now to Ottawa, where we have uh, one of my other colleagues, Ellie Kenton Nantel. Now, Ottawa, I think, has been, I didn't know this at first. It seems to be the, the largest one. Maybe some of the Alberta ones are doing pretty well here. Uh, Ellie, whereabouts are you now? Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was expecting you to have like all the groupies as well. You're a, <laughs> no, you're, in a I, you're in a, a safe, secure location. I now. am. I, I am back home. I am. I am safe from the uh, fundamentally racist, uh, uh, transphobic uh, people, as the union wanted us to believe. But yeah, I, I was uh, at the protest all morning, and the crowds were huge. And I expected there to be at least a thousand people there. I think this is one of these silent majority issues. And I, I did think it was going to kind of wake people up, the, the size of the crowd, but it was bigger than even I expected. There were, when they started to march because they gathered on the hill and then they started marching and I couldn't see the end on each side, how long it was. They, they often had to stop marching because they needed people to catch up. They were almost done their march and there were still people on the hill starting. Uh, so there was definitely a, a lot of people, a lot of energy. And, and the message, similar to what Harrison said, uh, was leave the kids alone. These were not hateful people. And, and I would joke, as I joked at the start, and I, I was joking to people, it's like, I'm here to find the bigots that they left warned about. I didn't find any of them. In fact, nobody that I talked to said they had an issue with gay or trans people. They simply want their kids to be taught what they believe is age-appropriate education and they want rights and parental rights and parental consent and, and that was really the, the strong message that we saw we have a clip that you took from the demonstration in ottawa we'll play that now I will say, first and foremost, anyone that was in that location during the Freedom Convoy protest will be grateful this one is in September and not uh, January, February for a, a number of reasons. Right. But uh, that was an interesting chant. No more silence. What were they really getting at in that moment? Well, I think there, there's kind of two things and they're they're linked. It, it's it's the, there's the, the actual physical silencing, which we see where parents go to school board meetings like we saw in Ottawa. Uh, and they get shut down by woke trustees uh, like Nellie Kaplan Mirth and others and other boards when they uh, say things which the trustees don't like. Uh, these parents are silenced. They're also silenced by school officials. And I think there's a greater silence 
of society broad, where there's a lot of people, and there's a poll by Angus Reid that had something like 78% of, of people that agree uh, in parental rights over uh, gender identity, yet a lot of people are scared to, to talk about this because there is a, a mob, a small fringe minority, a mob that, that equates any uh, wish of parental rights to hatred and, and, and genocide and things like that. And, and I think for that reason, a lot of people have been scared to speak out. And I, so to me, no more silent meant these two things. First of all, we will no longer be silenced by educrats. And second of all, we will no longer be silenced by activists because we are not anti-trans, we are not anti-gay, we're not anti-LGBTQ. What we are is pro-parent, uh, pro-children, and we just want to be involved in our kids' education, which, I mean, if you ask me, Andrew, is, is not a radical uh, ask. They're just asking for, for basic parental rights. I was chatting a little bit about this earlier with, with Harrison, the, the Muslim factor. And, and again, I, when I interviewed uh, Bahira Abdul-Salam and uh, Camille Al-Sheikh on the show, I, I said, you know, we could probably, between the three of us at the time, uh, disagree on a lot of issues. I mean, on some foreign policy issues, on some, you know, domestic policy issues. But on parental rights, it seems like there is a, an ability to overlook those differences. And, you know, the evangelical Christian and the Orthodox Jew and the Sikh and the Hindu and the Muslim and the atheist uh, can all kind of find common ground there. And I was just wondering if you could give a sense of what you saw on that, because I think the Freedom mm -hmm. Convoy, to, I mean, it's, it's a different issue, but one of the reasons it was so powerful is because you had these disparate groups like Quebecers and Albertans and Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people coming together. Were you seeing that in real time this morning? Oh, absolutely. And it was it was very much present. You had members of the Church of God, uh, Pastor Hildebrand's church, uh, chatting with and marching with uh, hijabis. Uh, there was uh, some uh, young uh, kind of, of, you know, white uh, guys that were, you know, on the shoulders of young Muslim guys and they were chanting, leave the kids alone. There was a lot of, of unity. There was a lot of unity. And this is where it's, it's great. This is what multiculturalism, I think, is all about. It's about coming together and putting our, our differences aside and living in this diverse, pluralistic society that is Canada. And we saw that on display. As you said, I'm sure a lot of these people could, could get in heated arguments about religion. They could get in heated arguments about foreign policy and whatnot. But on this issue, it's we are all united, basically, is what they were telling me, is they're all united, uh, including united with some LGBs and even Ts that are not in favor of this. I will say what was- LGBs and even Ts. You sound yes. like you're doing some like weird acrostic poem there, but- <laughs> Yeah, well, I, and also I will say what was striking is, is on the other side, you had the trans activists and they were telling Muslim immigrants to go home because they were opposing gender ideology and from what yeah, I it's amazing how the progressive diverse folks uh, immediately become what they say they're opposed to i mean they're the ones right. accusing everyone else of being fundamentally and members racist. of the ndp with them i mean i think this is this is the first time we have members of the ndp standing alongside protesters that are mostly white telling yeah. muslim immigrants to go home well, I, mean, we, I wanted to play this clip, actually. You mentioned uh, the Church of God. This is Pastor Henry Hildebrandt uh, going, well, I wouldn't say toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but uh, certainly uh, going uh, a little bit verbally against uh, Jagmeet Singh this morning. Is the government national? Is the Come on, Chinese. 
pay for government? Where are you standing? How can you help you? Hey, hey, ho, ho, transphobia's got to go. The a guy it looked like that was getting in front of Pastor Hildebrandt was, I'm pretty confident, NDP member of parliament, Matthew Green. Yeah, he had, he had uh, the pin. That was uh, one of the things that we saw going on there. And I would also point out, it's very easy at a glance to tell which side is the counter protesters because like 90% of them are wearing masks. So if you're ever mm -hmm. like trying to follow along at home and wonder whose side uh, each, people, each side is on, the ones wearing the masks are the union protesters. But Jagmeet Singh, a guy who sits in the halls of government, a guy who uh, basically cheer-led for the uh, Emergencies Act, is out there protesting, as is his right. Uh, but the NDP, you're right, Ellie, are really joining up with a, a group that I think is going to be found to be on the wrong side of history here. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, I was in the, I tweeted out the transfers of the culture, so to speak, when both sides kind of clashed in front of parliament. And what filled me is a bit of sadness because we can't talk to each other anymore. And a, a big reason why is because you have one side that has become so radical is they don't just see the other side as, oh, these are people who disagree. You know, I, I think we should have progressive sex set for this, 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 and that. They believe that people on the other side are fundamentally racist, fascists who want transgender people dead. And, and Andrew, this is radical. To, to say that your opponent's a fascist that wants you dead, when in reality, all they want is they want a bit more parental autonomy and they want a uh, sexual education curriculum that respects Canada's pluralism. I mean, and it, that's extreme. And, it, and it's sad that the NDP is endorsing that. You're right. I do think it's the wrong side of history. I think today is the beginning of the end of the cancel culture mob on this issue. From now on, I think Canadians are going to feel a lot more confident being able to take reasonable, um, loving stances on these issues without fearing to be shut down. I mean, there were more, from my personal observation at least, there were far more protesters than counter-protesters. Elie Canton-Nantel, great work in Ottawa. Thanks so much for coming on today. My pleasure, Andrew. And as mentioned, uh, True North will have continued coverage throughout the day and in the days to come on this. Uh, one story, I've got to actually write the story. I gave the uh, union in question, ETFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, time to comment on this, and they did not respond. I got a hold of a missive they sent out to some of their members about this, and they've actually, believe it or not, threatened discipline to any teacher that supports this protest. They, they're encouraging counter-protest, but anyone who supports this, they say, oh, oh, that might run afoul of your equity obligations. So the level of fear-mongering you see and the level of coercion you see, I could, I, well, I shouldn't say I could not count because I could count, I just haven't bothered to count. The number of emails I've gotten in the last three days from public sector unionized employees in Ontario specifically that are telling me how much they object to what their unions, QP and ETFO are saying and doing on this. And that's notable because I have always had like one or two dissident teachers and I love them that will tell me, oh, uh, you know, my school board's doing this or I got this email or, oh, won't you believe this? And I, but the volume, I have never had the volume that I've had this week 
And obviously people say, don't use my name. I'd be fired if anyone know I spoke to you or even knew who you were. But that's notable here. So there is a bit of a dissent on this stuff within the unions. And I mean, obviously they can come out in full force because they're unionized. So they're all just taking sick days today, I presume. And they're going to come out and uh, do this and counter protest. But it's actually quite shocking. And I, I want you to know, uh, when I talk about the unions more broadly, I'm, I'm not doing it to talk about everyone in there because I know it's not homogenous. And if you're one of these unionized employees that doesn't like what these unions are doing in your name, I see you and I hear you and I'm grateful you're there because I think it's important that uh, people in the classroom especially are not all singing from the same songbook on this. Uh, there's one clip, and this one, I play, I showed that picture earlier that really rubbed me the wrong way from Harrison about, uh, you know, you don't own your kids. But again, I, I want to just show you a clip that I think illustrates and illuminates that thinking a little bit more. You can smell the Marxist through your screens, and I apologize for that. I mean, you want to just take like basically an airdrop of Axe body spray onto that moment right now. Uh, again, they're the Marxists. They're uh, they've they've got like a Marxist domain name. Uh, they are a little bit low energy. Back in my day, the communists used to be a little bit more fiery, but nevertheless, uh, their argument, their approach to this is that they are our kids and our schools. So they do not believe that your kids are your kids. They believe your kids are their kids. It's like that song, this land is our land. It's this, this, this kid is my kid. This kid is our kid. They believe they have a say in how you parent your child. And uh, while they're the ones who decide to use the Marxist banner, uh, their worldview is one that's shared by a bunch of other people that may not identify as communists. And you can unplug your nose. The clip has uh, stopped now, but uh, perhaps that's uh, perhaps actually it might have been the stench of the Marxist that uh, killed Harrison's phone earlier when he was uh, trying to join us live from Toronto. So uh, nevertheless, I apologize if you had to be within four city blocks of those folks. But nevertheless, they have a right to be there. And let me just take a moment on this to talk about the importance of free speech. Now, this has always been for me the absolute hill to die on for me because my belief is that without freedom of speech, we do not have any other freedoms. We can't argue for the things about which we care if we don't have freedom of speech. So when I see protesters, however many there are coming out and speaking up for parental rights, and I see counter protesters, even if I disagree with them, I look at that exchange and I say, this is a profound win for society, that these two groups can meet in the middle and despite the tensions, express their position on what is a very real and very important issue in society. Now, the difference is that the parental rights folks are not trying to shut anyone down. The counter-protesters are. The counter-protesters actually do not believe that the protesters have a right to be there. They believe that it should all be denounced and dismissed as hate. As an illustration of this, let me share a statement from British Columbia's Human Rights Commissioner. She has issued what she calls a response to the hate-fueled marches planned for today. She says she's very disturbed by news of the hate-fueled marches. She says the human rights of trans and LGBTQ2SAI plus people are not up for debate. Denying the existence of trans and gender diverse people, including calls to erase trans and LGBTQ2SAI plus people from our province's curricula is hate. 
and hate should have no place in our community or in our schools. She goes on to talk about hate, hate, hate. Everything is hate. It's hateful. She says it's time to take action against the campaigns of misinformation and organized hate. And it goes on to say that we must stand together against hate. There's no space for hate. Hate, 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 hate. Now, I did not see a great deal of hate going towards the counter demonstrators. I saw a lot of hate coming away from them. But even so, hate is an emotion which people have a right to feel in a free society. It may be undesirable. It may be something we want to counter. But the Human Rights Commissioner of British Columbia would do well to look at what is the most fundamentally important human right in existence. The human right to freedom of speech is the foundation of a free and democratic society. And for a so-called human rights commissioner to spend time denouncing freedom of expression rather than focusing on the importance of preserving and protecting it is absolutely disgraceful. She has a right to weigh in on whatever issues she wants to weigh in on. She's a very well-paid civil servant. I am not immune from the understanding that human rights commissions are not places that generally respect and uphold free speech. But without freedom of expression, you can't do any of these things that you care about and advocate for any of the issues you want to advocate on. Now, all of this, all of this is part and parcel of why these exchanges are so very important and why uh, this is a display that we should be welcoming, even if we disagree with someone on the other side. And I have a lot of respect for anyone that is counter-protesting who believes that both sides have a right to play in this. But when this human rights commissioner says there is no place for debate, or she says it's not up for debate, well, you don't actually get the right to decide what is or is not up for debate. In a free society, we are able to discuss these issues. Now, I tweeted about this earlier, and someone said, oh, you're saying that trans rights are up for debate? I would say that they are in the context of what follows. You cannot unilaterally assert broad trans rights, whatever those are, without weighing those against, let's say, women's rights. The rights for women to have a space that is single sex, the right for women to be able to participate in women's only sports. So this is a very easy way of seeing that women's rights and trans rights, unless defined narrowly, will be in conflict with one another. Now, how do we solve that? We solve it by debating it. So to say that this is not up for debate means that your way is the right way and no one else can have a different opinion. And that is the danger of what's being argued here. And I should just say, to segue into an interview I had planned irrespective of this, this is not something that is just existing on the streets of Toronto and Ottawa and Calgary and Vancouver and London and Pickering today. This is an issue that goes at its core to a long-standing academic problem. And by that, I mean a problem in academia. Now, we've seen over many years, Alan Bloom wrote about this 35 years ago in his uh, seminal book, The Closing of the American Mind, that universities have become more hotbeds of indoctrination and ideological intolerance than the halls of inquiry that they once were. We've seen this get worse and worse and worse over time, however, and now one of the big problems is that good people who envision a future in academia want to self-select out of this because they do not see a place for their worldview. 
And that was at the crux of Brock Eldon's story. Now, Brock Eldon teaches at the RMIT University in Vietnam, though he is Canadian. And he's written in C2C Journal about this, Ground Zero in the Culture War. It's a three-part nonfiction novella chronicling what was at one point a bit of optimism he held about academia to, at the end, a, a bit of cynicism and uh, perhaps a more jaded outlook. Brock Eldon joins me now from Hanoi. I know it's very late where you are, Brock, so thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, let's start first off with the way you're telling this story, because I think we've seen, and there's merit to them, and I've written a few of them, just the garden variety columns about, you know, this happened on this university, this happened on the others. You've told it as a story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the the motivation for that was, I guess, just as I was uh, completing the degree back in Canada at Queen's, following two years overseas, getting some more context about when we talk about wokes, wokeism, you know, uh, talking about Marxism, um, living in South Korea, you know, within 200 kilometers of the North Korean border, then moving on to Beijing, Vietnam. Um, I suppose I've told it as a story just because it, it felt like such uh it, it felt like as i say at one point in the essay being in a kafka it was kafka-esque um from the outset from the very first class with that context and with that background it was it was like coming back to a completely different place and the idea came quite late in the degree but i think the feeling of this being a surreal kind of alternative world um, to the one that I had known uh, growing up in Canada, that came early on. And I also, I, I wanted to show, as you said, there's a lot of columns about this, but I wanted to show the reader what this actually feels like from the student perspective. And I think that was the main objective. I've written other kinds of nonfiction, but a narrative from the student point of view about this based on my experience. I mentioned in my crude summation that you went in wide-eyed and enthusiastic and you came out with all of these challenges and problems that you've raised here. Was there for you a flash in the pan, a pivotal moment where you realized this is not what I thought it was or hoped it would be? Or would you say it was much more of a slow burn? It was a more gradual process. I would say it was immediate. Uh, with the onset of classes, it was from, um, I arrived about a month early, uh, socialized with people in the program. And there were, there were some, um, minor red flags. There, there were arguments that came up that I disagreed with, but it wasn't until we got to class and um, we were asked to introduce ourselves with a, a, a sharing stick, um, some kind of appropriated indigenous object by a white prof professor. We were asked to pass around this sharing stick and identify ourselves by our preferred pronouns and then talk about our background with feminism um, 
And the idea, the language of safe spaces came up a lot. And the, the classroom policies of trigger warnings, all of that within about a 20 minute um, window was quite, it was like, this is reminding me of a lot of teaching in middle schools in China. Um, and just on that note, you were punished for not using trigger warnings, right? Yes, uh, early, because it's not in any classroom documents, but it's, it's, in, it's enforced, at least when I was there, it wasn't in classroom documents, but it was enforced. And I didn't, the first time around, I simply didn't understand that this was expected demanded of students that you begin any presentation presenting potentially triggering subject matter with a trigger warning. Um, I wasn't aware. And, but I was punished twice for not using trigger warnings. And the difficulty for me was determining what, what's problem, what's problematic and what's not. Yeah. Um, this the first time it was in this um indigenous gen gender studies class where the sharing stick was used um i wasn't especially i could sense that there were going to be problems there but i did not expect there to be problems presenting a paper on othello um i was reprimanded for that in an email and i to this day I still can't figure out which passage I read that was offending. Um, and uh, for that, I was docked 3%. Just the one aspect of this that I, I find kind of interesting is that I, I do believe there are good places and good pockets and good professors in, mm -hmm. in university. And I, I actually had not a, a terrible time with this. I mean, certainly there was a bit of a cultural clash on campus when I went to university and I'd even returned for something more recently and was still managed to sidestep any of the landmines. You were picking courses. It sounds like where you could have seen this from a mile away, like, you know, indigenous gender studies, that, just seems to me like the epitome of wokeism. Shakespeare and cross-dressing, another one that, that jumps out here. So mm -hmm. I, I, I say this respectfully, but what were you expecting with that course selection? Mm -hmm. That That's a question that's come up a fair bit. Um, I think that's fair. The The issue was um, that the those are the only two courses that I had any reservation about from the outset. Um, but the issue was that all of the other courses were so objectively questionable just in the their obvious political bias um the other courses i took are very were very traditionally titled jane austen and her contemporaries um 18th century manuscripts there weren't a lot of I, I did not sign up for Black Lives Matter or indigenous incarceration uh, or the refugee crisis or Victorian bodies. I, I tried to avoid all that, but there there are certain requirements, and I figured, at least with the Shakespeare course, we must be talking about something other than 
cross-dressing in a Shakespeare course. That's hard to stretch for 12 weeks, you'd think, but apparently not. Yeah, (laughs) it's it could go on for a long, long time. And it did. Um, The indigenous gender studies course was just a requirement because we needed a credit in post-colonial literature. Which is in and of itself a a requirement that fundamentally skews the academic environment because Mm post-colonialism is a very fraught and politicized approach. And it's a discipline that we see. I mean, I thought it was a political science and history discipline, but now it's even a literature requirement I'm learning. Absolutely. Um, And since I've left, the courses have gotten much worse. Um, All the way back to when I was there, the medieval course was Old English in translation. Um, last year, it was queer medievalism. So all of the historical, um, all of the canon has now been politicized. And it's right in the course titles and right in the course descriptions, and it's all public. When you look at the environment that you were in, how many of the students did you believe that you were in school with were true believers in this versus skeptics or people that were just sort of along for the ride? You know, maybe they have a higher tolerance for it, but they're not really immersed in that worldview Mm -hmm. themselves. I would say about, about, Certainly two-thirds were highly invested. Wow. Um, About 20% were just indifferent. They were there, um, just accepting whatever came to them. Um, And what was disappointing about that was I kind of expected a swing, but because you're your grades were rewarded based on uh, your, it was kind of the, this oppression Olympics thing going on. (laughs) So whoever wrote about oppression the most, um, addressed the most categories of oppression was rewarded with the highest grade. So you actually saw those, those students actually became more, more radicalized like if you were to listen i wouldn't say i don't know if they believed it but they knew what they had to do so they were willing to go to further extremes and then the remaining 10 percent um a lot of whom were international students um were just uh a chinese international student very early on uh without my having interacted with her just said outright outright um this is the cultural revolution. Wow. And, uh, but that was just completely shot down because it's, we're not taught about the cultural revolution in Canada. I, I think that's an important segue to the time that you had spent abroad and you had actually had a world of experience that you saw. You had been to China before you did your, your MA and was a lot of this just so quintessentially North American in your view? Like so quintessentially North American when you were seeing just this this cultural attitude? Because I've heard stories from people that have like tried to explain pronoun politics to people from India. And it's just like they're speaking mm-hmm. 
in, in completely different tongues because it just is so completely absent from the motivating forces in uh, countries that for whatever their issues are uh, doing pretty well economically like India and China. Well, according to my students at RMIT, um, uh, RMIT is an Australian university with campuses in Vietnam. So we're, we're getting, it's a technical university. It's not too much, but we are getting a lot of these cultural sensitivity workshops that we have to present. And um, when you brought up this idea of so quintessentially North American, um, the story that came to mind, the that came to mind right away was I presented, I've had to present a workshop like that twice and two separate students, three years apart, have said, this is who also uh, had studied in North America, had said, this is what happens to countries that have no problems. The students, uh, that's not to say Canada and America don't have any problems, but comparatively, um, students in, in Vietnam, throughout Southeast Asia, they're, they're not particularly concerned about being identified properly according to their pronouns. So they, they see this as an issue that is, well, it's, it's, it's not an issue. It's, um, it's people trying to make an issue because they have nothing else to motivate them to do anything. Um, conditions are um, set up for them. It's, it's not, and from what I would add to that is just what I think it is, is it's quintessentially North American because although my students are correct that the, the developed conditions are established, there's a point where it seems like development sort of uh, becomes static. And I think that's part of it as well. There's not, there's not a lot that ch has changed in on my return trips to Canada. It's it's the same place, but very very different politics. Um, so I I hope that answers your question. It does, and I I guess from there I would then go to the question of why you put up with it because you know for if you're in a law school or a med school there's a very clear reason that you need your degree whereas mm -hmm. you know you could read as many books as you want and write as much as you want without having an ma and i, I know obviously you're now teaching so i suspect mm -hmm. this may be a, a significant part of your answer but mm -hmm. if you had such a, a lofty and ambitious reason for being there which was wanting to learn and wanting to mm -hmm. grow was there a point in which you felt that this was actually holding you back from doing that and that you would have been able to self-teach these things outside of the classroom and say, screw the MA? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there was there, there was a time, and I've, I've written about this um, in a few columns that will be coming out. Um, there was a, if you're going to be a, a literary writer, becoming a, a a professor is one of the few ways that you can afford to do it. Um, if you become a tenured professor, you're you're engaged in with the greatest writers of all time constantly, 
whilst so shaping discourse about the field while simultaneously contributing to it and changing to it i i had um and there's there's plenty of figures that come to mind that um you know heroes of mine like um wh Auden, t.s Eliot, david foster wallace that seemed to me like the dream route where i could just be in, immersed in my love of literature all the time and financially secure enough to be able to pursue a career in creative writing. Um, I didn't quit the MA because I knew that it would land me a university job in Asia. And I knew about halfway, I'm, I'm not sticking around for this. Um, just seeing what this does to people and especially on, on campuses with young people that have grown up with social media. I think what distinguishes this culture war, and I've experienced some of this since since the release of the first installment, now all three parts are out, um, is what distinguishes this from other culture wars of other generations is that it's mediated by this digital space where your privacy can be completely invaded. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of passive aggressive um, Facebook posting or Twitter posting where they're not naming anybody, but there's a white supremacist in the class. And it, it's, it's like, well, who, who is it? What, and why, why are we creating this kind of panic? Um, it, it was an environment that I did not want to stick around in. And it was heartbreaking because I'd wanted to pursue the route that I described to you, um, ending up with tenure at a university from the time I, I started as, a, as an undergraduate. Um, really, really finding my, myself and my, my voice through literature and getting the grades that were, you know, mid nineties, high enough that I was assured that I would have a very successful academic career. And, and then I came back and it was just completely different. Um, I put up with it because I looked at university jobs in Asia, the MA was a, was a requirement that was motivation to finish. Um, but if that, if I hadn't have had that time overseas, I don't know of what would have motivated me. And I know of a lot of, especially young men who have dropped out of programs, including programs like physics, um, because of this, uh, mm -hmm. inability to express themselves and the yeah. detrimental effect it does have on their output. Well, and then it, it compounds the problem because all of a sudden the people that would counterbalance this are self-selecting out and it eventually mm -hmm. becomes uh, an asylum with only inmates, uh, to use yep. the uh, expression there. Well, it is a fascinating and very evocative series. You can read it over at uh, C2C Journal where our friends have all three installments up now. Ground Zero in the Culture War, parts one, two, and three. The author, Brock Eldon, joining us from Hanoi. Uh, Brock, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. 
And with that, it will wrap up our time today. We will be back tomorrow to close out the show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. And don't forget, tickets available for True North Nation in Calgary, October 21st. That is over at truenorthevents.ca. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.